I haven't done all the math, but I suspect that of the four Gospels, John, at least in terms of text, not, not volume of writing, but in repetition of thought, says the most about Jesus coming to this world. I mean in terms of repetition. Again, I understand Luke, big volume of text, Matthew, a lot of text. But John, of all the four gospel writers, says more about the Lord's coming into this world. And yet without there being a clear record of the history of his birth. But more than the writers, he speaks of the Lord coming from heaven, coming into this world, being sent from the Father, and other such terms. I am come occurs five times, and if you add the words of John chapter 12, where it says, I am come not, you get six times where some references to Christ coming. Seventeen references there are to him being sent from the Father. You've got chapter 10, the verse 36 here, for example. Say ye of him, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. Again, the repetition, 17 times. References to Jesus being sent from the Father. Six times he came down from heaven. Yes, it's in chapter 3, but especially in chapter 6 as the bread that comes from heaven. The repetition of these words and these concepts are very, very forceful in this gospel. Emphasizes the purpose of the writer that we may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And his purpose that we believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, is well served by repeating these themes. Because as the Christ, he is sent from God, commissioned by the Father. He is, again, the Lord's apostle, the Lord's sent one. As the Son of God, he is preexistent. He is the eternal Son of God. And so as John is mentioning and expounding upon his thesis, he goes back to these concepts time and time again. Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, comes into this world with a divine mission, sent and commissioned by the Father. And so in these words, we get several statements of purpose. We have one here in chapter 10, verse number 10. I am come, and here's the purpose, that they might have life. It's a statement of purpose. Why are you here? This is why I'm here. I have come, I pre-existed, I come into this world, that they might have life. He is the shepherd who gives life to the sheep. Of course, you will know chapter 10 of John is, is well known for these various shepherd metaphors. He clearly is the shepherd I am, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Elsewhere, of course, in the scriptures, he is not only the good shepherd, but the great shepherd and the chief shepherd. He is the shepherd. But in our context here, he is not only the shepherd, but he is the door. Verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. These are some of the great I am statements of the Savior. Again, we saw in John 18 this morning in Bible class, uh, this idea of Christ as the I am is his claim to be the eternal Jehovah, the self-existing eternal God, I am. But he, con he connects the I ams uh, to various metaphors of his purpose, of his ministry. Here we've got to appreciate something of how sheep were cared for in those days. Okay, 
admit a fair degree of naivety in these things, uh, and I certainly depend upon the writings and thoughts of others. But we're told uh, that the shepherds would take the sheep grazing through the day. There was various sheepfolds dotted around the countryside. They, they were usually walls, uh, small walls, and the sheep would go into the fold. And then the shepherd, they would lie at the door. So they would, they would go in in front of the sheep, the sheep would follow them in, and then the shepherd would come out and lie across the door, really closing the, the sheepfold in from all manner of predators, like those mentioned there in verse number 12, the wolf cometh and the comes to take the sheep. And so the shepherd was prepared to risk his life for the sheep. Predators would have to go through the shepherd to get to the sheep. The wall protecting the shepherd, the sheep around, and the sheepfold, but then uh, that entrance... That entrance was protected by the shepherd himself. And so you see the two ways in which this language is used. He is the door. You only are seen by coming through Christ. But he's also the one who protects the sheep in the fold. He's the door in those, in those two fold senses. Well, of course it's clear. All the actions of the shepherd are aimed at giving life to the sheep. Life. Abundant life. And it's that thought they want to think about with you tonight. The shepherd and life. The shepherd and your life. Or even the shepherd and your lack of life tonight. Note, first of all, then, life specified. Life specified. Again, we have it worded here, verse number 10. I am come that they might have life. Now, that we are not at liberty to simply imagine and speculate what is meant here. There are various things that we see in the Word of God regarding life, of course. It is the opposite of death. And we see again language, the sheep live and do not die. Life is furthermore defined by words like verse number 28, I give unto them, and here we have the adjective added to the word life, I give unto them eternal life, everlasting life. And it may be the case that that word eternal is the best way to understand the terms in verse number 10, that they might have it more abundantly. And that's a difficult, difficult phrase. Again, there are various thoughts, and you may have heard various preaching over the years, that a sheep can have life, and they can also have abundant life, as if these are two distinct things. And the text is not offering two distinct experiences. It's not suggesting that the sheep can have life and there are those on a higher plane who have abundant life and yet you get some really good sermons on the abundant life. This is not a promise only for the top tier, if you like, of the Christian. This is a promise for every Christian. Christ came to give abundant life for every single sheep who follow him. Life in Christ Jesus so these words, again, if they are defined by the word eternal, need further definition. Clearly, of course, when you think of sheep as being a metaphor for the Christian, we know that the sinner is dead in sin. We know that language from Paul. We're, we're dead in sin. We are quickened, made alive in Christ Jesus. Again, we've got to keep that language also in mind when you think of a portion like this. I am come that they may have life. That those who are dead in sin will be made alive in Christ Jesus. 
Salvation, of course, is a passage from death unto life. We know that we pass from death unto life, John says in 1 John chapter 3. Christ himself is said to abolish death, bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel, 2 Timothy chapter 1. But we have another help in John's gospel. We're trying to specify what is this life. Well, the Lord himself does the work for us. It's over in John chapter 17. Please turn across there. It's in the Lord's prayer that he prays uh, again prior to his death, John 17. And we're told what this abundant life is. John 17, verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The one who was sent from heaven was the one who came to secure life for the sheep, the life that is hereby specified with the words that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Sometimes we minimize the thought of eternal life. We think of eternal as a quantity of time that cannot be calculated. You know, no kids, when they first sort of grow into maturity and they think of eternity, they, they say until then, until then, until then, and their minds get blown as they realize the uncalculability of eternity. But eternity and eternal life used by John is not only about a quantity of time, but a quality of life. A quality that cannot be comprehended. Eternal life is not only future for the child of God, but is a present reality. He that believeth on the Son, John 3, hath everlasting, eternal, and to put it this way, divine life. A life that comes from God. And thus we see that life specified in John is a life of knowing God and knowing Christ who brings us to God. And life, therefore, life must be ultimately defined and specified in respect to our relationship with God. Our condition in sin is that of death. By God's grace, we are made alive in Christ Jesus. That making alive is unto a life of fellowship with the Lord. The consequence of life is a relational knowledge of God. Christ Jesus came that we might know God. You know, a life, a life lived outside of a living relationship with God is not living. In Christ's definition, a life lived outside of God is not life in the truest sense. You know, you hear those, again, who are struggling and wrestling with this world. And the unconvertible say of a feeling of an absence of life. Again, one of the things you hear, again, back in some of my background, those who are struggling with, even with mental illness and mental health, some of them were saying they felt dead inside. This is this recognition that even experientially, the unconverted soul can come to realize they do not know true life. Because the Bible is clear. Only Christ can bring life. There is no true life outside of Christ. There's nothing but spiritual death. We try to soften the tone of that language. We acknowledge the unconverted people. They, they do this and they do that and the other thing. 
Well, they are dead in sin as they walk according to this world. So as we look at this again in some more detail, we're trying to specify this life. I need to remind you what this life is not. Because if eternal life is knowing God, there are some who may presume they have eternal life because they have some form of knowledge. Some grasp of particular concepts. You see, knowing God is not an intellectual knowledge of the gospel. The demons, they believe God is one and tremble. There are those and they can expound justification. They can explain the confession of faith and they know much about the gospel and yet they do not know God. Even the spirits in the Lord's day, they would, they would come to him and they'd say, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. They can identify Jesus, not only as a good prophet, but as the Holy One of God. They knew much about the Lord. There are those again who know much about the Lord's will. They know the Ten Commandments. They can recite the Ten Commandments. They even, they even know the application of them. Again, they can, they can memorize and learn the sort of catechism definitions of what's required and what's forbidden in the various commandments. But remember, there are servants who know the Lord's will and yet shall be beaten with many stripes. A knowledge of the will of God is not the same as knowing God. It's not being involved in religious activities. And the sons of Eli, they were sons of Belial that knew not the Lord. Involved in religious ritual and practice and all manner of things in the tabernacle. And yet they did not know the Lord. You see, there's a knowledge of the things of the gospel that is not the same as knowing the Christ of the gospel. Not the same as knowing the God who brings the gospel. Even Samuel, again, is, is real as you like in the gospel. And yet it says in 1 Samuel 3 that Samuel did not yet Know the Lord. Again, there are those in this assembly, and you've been raised to know much about the Bible. You've been taught the Bible since you're very, very young, and you know, you know the commandments, you know the will of God, you know about Jesus Christ, you know the claims of the gospel, and you may presume that by these things that you are saved and you're Christians. But you're just people who know a lot, and you're still dead in your sins. You see, positively, if we're to define what it is to know God, we must remember what the word know means in the Bible, at least how it's often used. Remember what we're seeing here? We're trying to define and specify this life. Christ Jesus came to give life. What is life? That we may know God. And Jesus Christ, in my ascent, what does it mean to know God? Well, it's much, much more than intellectual knowledge. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus knew no sin. That does not mean that he did not have an intellectual awareness of sin. Of course he did. He knew about sin. He could say the woman caught in the night of adultery, go and sin no more. He could see sin, identify sin, condemn sin, and tell people to leave sin. The Lord knew about sin intellectually. So what does it mean he knew no sin? He had no relationship with sin, no fellowship with sin, no communion with sin. Of course, we see it here in John 10. You can look at John 10, please. And you'll see how this word is used in John chapter 10 itself in the context. Verse number 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and I'm known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Now here we're into weighty mysteries. The relationship with the Father and Son here in terms of knowing. And of course when you think of the Bible and you see the blessedness of the Trinitarian relationship, you see true experiential knowledge, fellowship. You read Proverbs chapter 8. The Father and the Son delighting in each other, pre-incarnate, the pre-existent Christ before creation, delighting in the Father and the Father delighting in the Son. These are terms of relationship and fellowship, communion, hearing God in His Word, delighting in God with our hearts, speaking with God in prayer. This is true life. You haven't lived until you've come to know fellowship with God. Augustine, of course, so well known, the church father and his confessions are well known and often quoted, wrestled with sin, ascent his own depravity, and ultimately came to the conclusion that God, as he puts it this way, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. As image bearers of God, the unconverted realize that they are made to have a relationship with God. They perceive that in their minds. Now they push it aside and they suppress it and they shut it out, but they know there's a God in heaven. They live in that knowledge and their hearts are searching for meaning and significance in everything else apart from knowing God's. But the Bible is so very, very clear. There is no life outside of Jesus Christ. There's no life anywhere else. It's only found in knowing God's. And the unconverted can spend all of their life searching for meaning and significance. They can go from east to west, from north to south, but they will not find purpose until they find Christ. Life comes in Christ and in Christ alone. It is a sad reflection sometimes of our backslidden, cold hearts that we don't value this. We value the prospect of heaven, and yet we do not value the fellowship with God we have here on earth. We have everlasting life. Heaven is the perfection, the fellowship we enjoy now. Life defined, life specified. Secondly, please note though, life is secured. Again, the language is clear. I am come that they might have life. But the language he uses here is of giving his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, similarly, verse 17, the same language, I lay down my life that I might take it again. Now, I've mentioned to you already that the picture here is of the, the sheepfold with the open door, the open gates, and the shepherd lying in front of that door protecting the sheep. And we have that language again used in verse number 12. He that is inheriting and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. Now, it's metaphorical, it's picture language. The shepherd, if you like, in the context, is risking his life, prepared to lose his life. But Jesus himself actually dies. But as it says in verse 17, he dies that he might take his life again. He's using a picture to make a point that in his death, he secures life for the sheep. Now, we've got to think here. The sheep imagery used here in John 10 must be seen really in theological terms. I want to show you three things about the sheep. 
They are a covenant people, a chosen people, and a converted people. They are a covenant people. Old Testament language refers to Jesus, well, as the Son of God pre-incarnate, as the shepherd. Jehovah is the shepherd of the sheep. And there are several references in the Word of God where the Lord bemoans the fact that His people are sheep without a shepherd. There's a prediction in the prophecy that He will raise up a shepherd according to David. One shepherd who will be if like the shepherd for all the sheep in the fold. Consider though Jeremiah chapter 31. Just one reference here. In terms of the theology of the sheep, again, I will draw this around eventually, and you'll see the point of this in one or two. But Jeremiah chapter 31, we've one these references to the Lord as the shepherd. It's verse number 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar of off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. The idea of the, of the gathering of the people of God. And in the context, you turn across then to the later verses and turn down to verse number 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant made with their fathers in the day that took them by the hand to lead them or to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no man no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. Please see the connections here. He is the good shepherd. He gives his life for the sheep. In the language of the Old Testament, the sheep refer to the people of God's they're the people of God. And the shepherd is going to gather them together again. And there's a promise of a new covenant. And the shepherd comes. Why? To give life. And what is life? It is knowing God. And in the covenant, the shepherd secures a covenant by giving life. They're a covenant people. They're secure in the promises of redemption. They're also a chosen people. Again, back across to John chapter 10. You note the words in the language of John 10, verse 26. So again, the Lord is dealing with the fact that he's come unto his own and his own received him not. He's dealing with the Jewish people. And he says to them, But ye believed not. Not, therefore ye are not my sheep. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. They're not part of the chosen of God. And therefore their unbelief confirms the fact they're not chosen of God. Similar words in verse 16. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Again, it's a promise of the, the gathering of Gentiles into the fellowship of the saints. They are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold. And one shepherd in fulfillment of those old covenant promises. Christ, the shepherd of his sheep securing the salvation of his chosen people. They are a covenant people, a chosen people, a converted people. Verse number 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's a recognition that they've come to know the Lord. 
you know, you think this through carefully, you come back to the same basic gospel truths. How are you saved today? How are you redeemed today? Well, you, you could answer that in various ways. But I'd certainly encourage you to use language like this. I'm saved by grace alone. In Christ alone. Through faith alone. And the language here indicates all of those points. Grace alone. By nature, we do not know God. You turn across just very briefly to Galatians chapter 4. Here I'm showing you this, this converted people. They're, they're converted by the grace of God. They're saved by the grace of God. Galatians chapter 4 defines the, the, the Gentiles. Galatians 4. In the verse number 8, How be it then when ye knew not God? Describing the, the Gentiles who, who, who didn't know fellowship with God. When ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. It's the wonderful assurance that by nature we do not know God and the only reason we fellowship with God is by God's free and sovereign grace. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. We, we know Romans 9, don't we? The sovereignty of God in showing us his mercy is a mercy that's shown in covenant. I'll give them a new heart. I'll write my law in their hearts and they shall know me. We are saved by grace alone and saved into fellowship with God. Grace alone. In Christ alone. What secures the covenant? What secures the promises of the Old Testament scriptures with regards to Christ's coming? The blood. The blood of the everlasting covenant. That secures the covenant. The good shepherd, what does he do? I lay down my life for the sheep. See, we're, we're trying to see this in a, in a, in a broad sense, in, a, in biblical doctrine. The shepherd is to secure the covenant and to give his life for the sheep. And so he does that by, by giving his life and by shedding his blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant. He is the great shepherd who through the blood of the everlasting covenant secures our redemption. These things all come together. We're saved by grace alone. It's in Christ alone. It's only in the merits of his work that we come to know the Lord. And of course, we're saved by faith alone. My sheep hear my voice. There was a time, if you're a child of God today, that you heard the voice of Christ. Oh, that, that voice had perhaps been around you before. You've been in gospel preaching, you'd heard the word from your parents or someone else, and you, you knew about the gospel. But now for the first time, you recognize the voice. He says, that's the voice of Jesus. He's my Lord and my God. And now for the first time, I'm going to follow him. That's a statement of faith. Because, again, you know the language. The consistency here is, my sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27. I know them and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life. And you consider elsewhere in the Gospel of John, following Christ brings eternal life. Believing in Christ brings eternal life. 
In other words, to follow Christ is to believe in Christ, and to believe in Christ is to follow Christ. It is to hear His words. It is to identify His authority. It is to gladly submit to His reign, to follow as He walks with God, so we walk with God. And we follow Him in obedience and submission as our Master. And so, that's what it means theologically for the shepherd to give his life for the sheep. It's got so much more to it than simply saying, he died for my sins. He secured the covenant. He sealed the promises that the sheep are brought into fellowship with God and they know him. They relate to him. They hear his voice in the word of God and they delight to pray and to worship his name. That's the securing of this life. And finally, please note, this life is sustained. Look again at the context here, verse number 9. I am the door by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief, they come to steal and to destroy and to kill, but I am come that they may have life. And so this life is defined not only in the origination of life, the initiation of life by Christ's grace, but also in the life that he sustains. Dear child of God, this day and in other days, you go in and you go out and you find pasture. Because Christ is your shepherd. He is the mediator of your communion with God. He, he reconciles God to man and he sustains our life of fellowship with God. I wrestled, how do I, how do I really bring this home to you as this Lord's Day comes to a close? I thought I could outline various things, but I thought to myself, I can do no better than turn you back to Psalm 23. What does it mean for Christ to sustain our life? Well, turn back to the 23rd Psalm. You may know it by heart, I'm sure you do. But here are the words, they speak of Christ sustaining our life. He is the shepherd of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Jesus is my shepherd. And I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Promises here of provision. He sustains our life by providing for us. By the Word and by the Spirit, we're led by Christ, fed by Christ, strengthened by Christ, sustained by Christ. He provides for us. I think as God's people, we need to stop and remember this sometimes. Because like our daily bread that comes to us from God, so our spiritual bread comes to us from God and as we take the one for granted, so we take the other for granted also. You woke up this morning, and you presumed this church would still be here. You presumed that somebody would be here. If it wasn't me, somebody else would be here. There'll be somebody here to preach the gospel. We presume these things. You'll arise tomorrow morning, and you'll open your Bible, and you'll turn to a portion of Scripture, and you'll, you'll presume now, some of that presumption is it's good. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I can presume upon his grace because these are promised graces. 
I, I have the assurance as the people of God that I, that I know He will lead me and feed me with His Word and by His Spirit. But as we delight in the promise, let's not forget to give thanks for the fulfillment of the promise. He is leading us. Have you fed this year? You see, if you are starving spiritually, it's not Christ's fault. You've forgotten to eat. He's led you in green pastures. But you decided not to feed upon the grass provided by Christ Jesus. He never feels. He never will feel his people. But the fellowship we enjoy that is sustained by Christ Jesus does require us to take what he gives us and the food of the word. So as this year comes to a close and a new year comes, Remember, Christ will supply your every need spiritually. He will supply everything you need in the walk with God. But as he does, may there not be a day that will end without you saying, thank you, Lord, for saving me, and thank you, Lord, for keeping me. Thank you, Lord. You provided for me today and yesterday and the previous day, and I know you provide for me in the coming days. You will not fail to provide for my needs. It's a promise of provision. There's a promise also of his presence. Verse number four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Christ is the one who secures our life. Our communion with God. You know, if, if we're going to, if we're going to enjoy relationship it involves time. It involves presence. Being together. You know, you may grow afar off a friend. My wife and I were talking today. We haven't seen some friends for, for many, many years. And just because of that, there's a distance in the relationship. If, if you were together all the time, you'd, you would have that closest relationship. But due to distance, we don't see them so often. If our relationship with Christ... It's cold. It's not because Christ isn't present. It's because we've drawn afar off. I will go with you. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Even in those seasons where he seemed to be afar off, even there he's with us. In the presence of Christ. You want to remind yourself of that? Read something of Bunyan's progress. As he describes this valley, Christ with him in the valley. Promise of provision and a presence, and of course, finally, also protection. Though I prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, though I anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. The protection that our shepherd gives us is a protection that assures us of eternal life in the sense of quantity, not just quality. That nothing, nothing can rob us of our lives. We will live forever 
and forever and forever. And though our bodies may decay, our souls will live with Christ forever and forever. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because we're strong and bold and confident? No, because we're weak. But we've got a strong shepherd. And he will guide us all the way home, protecting us and securing our eternal redemption. I am come that they might have life. Dear child of God, you trust in Christ Jesus. He says he came that you might have life. He has not and will not fail to achieve his purposes. Christ never fails. I am come that they might have life. Therefore, we have life. Life in Christ, in the knowledge of God. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. Just commit our ways to the Lord. We're going to sing a closing hymn after the prayer, but we'll just pray at this time and look to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Bless it to your hearts. We pray you'd help us to delight in fellowship with thee, that we would know thee, that we pray to thee, we hear your voice in the word. You feed us, sustain us, provide for us. We thank you again at the close of this day. We thank you for Jesus, your Son and our Savior and our Shepherd who guides us and protects us and keeps us all of our days. Help us, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.